Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What's going on is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to join us on the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast, even to those of you who have spent the last couple of weeks calling for my head. Hi, Murph. Hi, Ken. Happy Hi, New Year. You. Even to all the haters and losers. That's what yeah. that sounded like. Uh, on. I was on honeymoon in South Africa, uh, taking a closer look at some of those beautiful animals that so enchanted us all, Ken, during Planet Earth 2 yeah, yeah. last year. Yeah. Turns out that they actually don't spend all their time fighting and running for their lives, so... Mostly just lying and yawning. They're mostly lying, yawning, and then when it gets too hot, they stand up, walk over to a slightly more shady spot, and then fall asleep there. Yeah. Did you ask? Did you ask for your money back? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a kill. I need to see a this kill. is a complete shambles. I want <laughs> yeah. you to know that they um, don't. They don't bring smaller animals to just release where the carnivores are. Arrested like in to, to generate a bloody spectacle for uh, the tourists. Well, maybe some of the other places can, but I was in a perfectly respectable. Uh, establishments, so that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. To be I fair. was particularly taken by the plight of one guy I came across, though a big old male giraffe wandering around aimlessly, looking a little bit sorry for itself, for himself, I should say. Turns out this guy had been the alpha male of the group. <laughs> sorry, what is it? The tower of giraffes, I should say. Okay. But he'd been challenged by, <laughs> he'd been challenged by a younger rival, beaten and banished from the tower. Little did I know, upon my return, I would come to know exactly how that poor old fellow was feeling. Oh. Mm. Like him, my authority's been undermined. I think you can see where I'm going with this. Yeah. I kind of think banishment is on the way. The young bull, in this case, standing presenter Richie Sadler. Two years older than you. Yeah, well, yeah. a year and a half. I did look at that, Murphy. A year and three months, <laughs> <laughs> to be precise. Uh, it seems, judging by the tweets I've been getting, that Richie's been doing a more than capable job in my absence. Kevin Burke, are you really letting Owen McDevitt back tomorrow? Hashtag Richie's second captains. Colm Doyle, try not to focus on who stabbed who in the back and instead remember the good times. Here, here's the new SC, hashtag Bosman. Um, <laughs> Owen Kilkenny, more, uh, Owen who, Owen McDevitt who, Richie Sadler was great on second captains. Robert Dunahoo, fair play to Richie, great podcast. Be afraid, Owen McDevitt, and so on. Uh, where is the one? Oh, there was one even with a, a worried Kermit the Frog gif. 
I was supposed to be feeling like Kermit <laughs> the Frog was looking, and uh, so on and so on. You better watch out. He wants your job. So, so. Not only that, right? Yeah. I, I think that's okay. At least you guys would have my back. Yeah. You know, well. I mean, there's strength in numbers here when a young, For raging now. bull like Richie Sadler comes along to attack. For now, uh, Owen McDevitt's uh, lead presenter. Mm. And then Simon here, after recording the football podcast today, decides to put up the wrong one. He puts up Richie's one. A few <laughs> of you early listeners notice this straight away. He put up Richie's from last week. So it's just Richie was a threat as a standing presenter, not Mark Horgan, say, or any of the other standing presenters. Well, you know, they've all tried. You've all tried, but... Yeah, asserted my dominance over you. Listeners probably forgot to include our Twitter handle. That was probably. And <laughs> <laughs> li- listen, I'd be even more upset with all this if not for a couple of gifts that I found on my desk this morning. Oh, go on. Did you see these? You probably might have seen them knocking around over the last. Uh, well, I, I saw there. one of them. The other one was a package um, wrapped mysteriously that uh, we were all speculating wildly as to what. Well, it I'll may get be to that one. Thing. The first one is a book called Andre the Giant: Life and Legend by Box Brown, a New York Times bestseller, apparently, uh, sent to me by uh, an old pal called Sean. Happy Christmas, Owen. Again, I've been away on honeymoon for quite a while. Thought you would enjoy this present, uh, this pleasant read. We had a chat about the big man of good for years ago in Salt Hill. All the best. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember this honour of the giant chat. So thank you very much, Sean. Uh, According to Mick Foley, this book will thrill longtime fans of the man known as the eighth wonder of the world. That's Mick Foley, the wrestler, not Mick Foley, the... Mm. Oh, I thought you, I, I assumed that was, that was Mick Foley with the Sunday Times. No, that mistake has been made. I've right. seen... The, I think the he two of them, them have... all the time. Yeah, the bloody yeah, yeah, field. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. So Michael Foley, writer with the Sunday Times, retweets wrestler wrestling fans tweeting at him. Oh, right. Like, he does it all the time. I mean, I think in his Twitter handle it says, not the wrestler, for God's sake. <laughs> and the second little gift that I got, Murph, was that mystery package. Mm. Which I opened up today, and I do thank you all. I know you have all got form in opening up other people's posts. This is a, this is a, a bizarre one because it was sort of really it was large and thin. It was like a kind of a two dimensional object. It's a poster, right? Again on a wrestling theme, yeah. uh, sent in by Colin Mackin. I don't know, we met Colin in New York. Oh, we remember uh, Colin well, friend of Andy Lee's. There, yep. yeah, had a had a great night or two with hello with Colin. Colin. So hello, hello, Colin. Thanks very much for sending this all the way from the states. He came across it in a shop in Memphis. And it is uh, titled WWWF Championship Wrestling. So this is pre-WWE, pre-WWF. It was the WWWF, Monday, February 20th, 1978, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Heavyweight Championship, superstar Billy Graham (laughs) versus Bob Backlund. Billy Billy Graham. Not the pastor. Not not the televangelist. No. He looks like an earlier version of Hulk Hogan, sort of. Mm. Bronzed, extremely bronzed. and, And also balding, but blonde with... With, uh, what, what, with moustaches on, on either side. Yeah, yeah, moustaches on either side, basically, yeah. But uh, there's a little bit of, I would say, a lack of political correctness here. Yeah. Midget tag team match. Hmm. Yeah. Who were the, 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 the pugilists? The pugilists in question here, Little John and Lord... <laughs> laugh this. Lord Littlebrook. Okay. Uh, versus Wee Willie Nelson. <laughs> and Hillbilly Pete, who for some reason, Hillbilly Pete, it uh, doesn't get a... Inappropriate moniker. Yeah, well, good for him, quite frankly. He's yeah. Well, he's Hillbilly. Hill I, mean, I know, but it doesn't fit in with the match that he's in there. He's against Wee Willie Johnson, Little John, and Lord Littlebrook. So why? Why doesn't he have a name referring to his his size? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Fuji from Japan. <laughs> he's, Perhaps he, not his real name. No, he's fighting Mil, Mil Mascaris. Dusty Rhodes is in here, mm. legendary wrestler. He's fighting Turu Tanaka from Japan. Again, possibly not his real name. And there's also uh, an Oklahoman here, Ken. Chief J Strongbow. Oh yeah, yeah. Chief J Strongbow is up against Spirius Arion from Greece. 
Wow. The, uh, the, the Greek wrestlers haven't been as popular in the last 30 years, apparently, but obviously we're pretty big in 78. It's a pretty cool poster. I mean, it's an amazing obvious, poster, yeah. Obvious uh, racial and what all other types of epithets. Mo- most of this poster wouldn't be allowed today. Yeah. Or maybe... maybe maybe Well, maybe not five okay years again. ago, but in five years' time, maybe... Yeah. We might be back. Midget tag team matches might be all that we're talking about on this podcast in six years' time. Yeah, Who knows? it does sound a little bit like that, actually, given the... Uh, I'm impressed with the condition the this thing arrives, ar- the arrives in. Because it sort of arrived in its... Like, if you, if you think a poster will probably come kind of rolled up, but actually this came as it would go on the wall mm. and remarkably oh, undamaged it, by the uh, postal service. As it will go on the wall, Ken, just as soon as, as we finish go, this podcast. All of that brings us nicely to this. I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just oh. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay, ain't nobody fucking with my click. Click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Daniel Crowell has emailed editor at secondcaptains.com about the rise of the alt sport. How are you, lads? I've just finished watching live proof of the many worlds theory that every possibility will happen in one of an infinite number of universes, also known as the inauguration of President Trump. While watching, I was wondering why the world is lurching towards extremism and demagoguery and Ireland's main reaction has just been to double its already bloated Healy Ray doll representation. Then it occurred to me that the Irish people have already chosen their Trump country is divided by a brash populist clickbait personality, a one percenter with questionable views on labour laws, who has honed a personality cult which his fans will defend viciously against the slightest questioning. I am, of course, referring to Conor McGregor. Their new World <laughs> Federated of the Championship! No doubt the vocal alt-sport fans would not allow such a comparison as they have largely managed to shut down dissent and have taken offence at Ken's Walter Cronkite-esque journalism. In the future, when we have President McGregor, people will say, then they came for the sports journalists and I did not speak out because I was not a sports journalist, <laughs> says Dan. Yeah. Nice work, Dan. And we do appreciate all the work that everybody puts into these emails, by the way. That's, uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a hell of a man. Yeah, it's fun. I was thinking actually about, about McGregor because... I remember when I was covering one of his fights, I did compare him to Trump, or I think there's a sort of similarity with Trump in the sort of speak your brains quality that they have, where uh, there was no, what was the, the line that I could remember from The Sopranos is, uh, it's when uh, Livia Soprano dies, and who is it? Someone says at the funeral, uh, there was no interlocutor between mouth and brain. Uh, uh, whatever it was that formed in her mind was coming out of her mouth half a second later. And Trump and McGregor would be like that. But actually, he's not really Trump. The person he is, I mean, he's obviously not Trump, Jesus. But the person who he actually is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger, Trump's replacement on The Apprentice. That's the person whose career his parallels now, I think, most closely. And Schwarzenegger did go on to become the governor of California. So uh, fifth biggest economy in the world or whatever. So I mean not to be sniffed at. Yeah. So so um I don't know where, where the where the ceiling is for Congress. He can't be the president because of his uh not of the United States because he wasn't mm. born there. But um If he fancies a run in Dublin South Central <laughs> I think he's the most socialist of all uh, uh, political constituencies. I don't even know if they'd, I'm, uh, I don't even know if they'd hold it against him. Yeah. I mean, it is true. It is, it is true. It is, it is the most socialist constituency, my former constituency, mm. uh, before I moved to Dublin Bay North, uh, the leafy suburbs. <laughs> uh, the leafy, and in some cases, salty suburbs. But uh, I don't think they'd hold it against Conor McGregor. I think he could 
ride to victory on whatever uh, political platform he uh, he decided to go with. The man credited with coining the phrase alt-right oh, had yeah. a bad weekend, didn't he? Richard Spencer? Yeah. Prompting the following question in the New York Times. Is it okay to punch a Nazi? What did they say? I haven't read the whole article again. Uh, <laughs> I've read the whole article. Alone. Okay. And, and uh, they decide not to answer the question, but to posit numerous responses and let their reader make up his own or uh, her own mind. Yeah. So what... Uh, so how did it? Um, how, how did it come? How did they come down? Uh, well, well, they didn't. I mean, they no, they're allowing the listeners to come they, down. That's they, or the reader. They basically uh, outlined some of the responses. Yeah. Uh, many of those responses were, well, one was if you're having a debate about whether it's okay to punch a Nazi, you're not having the right conversation. Which, which I presume suggests that it's taken as a given that punching a Nazi is absolutely. Is absolutely fine. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I find I find it difficult. I mean, obviously, you know, if you know who Richard Spencer is, uh, and you see him getting punched in, in an interview, just as you're about to explain, uh, his, with his smug face, um, Pepe the Frog, uh, and then he gets punched very hard in the ear. Um, More of a forearm smash, if anything. It was. It's vicious. you know it, the the kind of instinctive responses to kind of think. Something along the lines of, well, you know, that one's been in the mail for a while. He probably, you know, if anyone mm. deserved to get to get a punch like that, then uh, this guy would have been somewhere around the front of the queue. But I do feel as though it was basically a bad thing. I don't think that, I don't think um, punching people on the street is good. I think it's very much... Uh, I mean, there, there are loads of there's there been loads of stuff about this. I mean, loads of people were saying, "Oh, this is great! Look at this guy! You know, what a dick! He deserved this. Uh, wouldn't it be great if if they could all just get a punch in the face, and maybe then they they'd be too scared to come out of their mother's bedrooms and so on. mother's bedrooms um, basements." Yes, it's the usual. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ba- that's a totally different uh, <laughs> conversation ba- there. Parents' yeah. basements. <laughs> But, you know, uh, punching people on the street is also what uh, what Nazis do. It's a very Nazi kind of a thing to do. Uh, street intimidation, uh, might is right. That's what, that, that's actually their, the way that they would want things to be. That's the way they would want to work, you know, in, in ideal circumstances. And I think it's, I think it's bad. I mean, there's all kinds of quotes going around. I mean, there was one. One good one from Mark O'Connell. Well, Mark O'Connell tweeted it. I think it's Warren Ellis, um, who is a kind of a comic book writer who's written a bunch of movies like Iron Man and this kind of stuff. Uh, and he says, all I can tell you, <clears throat> this is Warren Ellis, all I can tell you from my perspective as an old English socialist and cultural liberal, which who's probably way to the woody left from most of you and actually has a medal for services to free speech, yes, it is always correct to punch Nazis. They lost the right to not be punched in the face when they started spouting genocidal ideologies that in living memory killed millions upon millions of people. And anyone who stands up and respectfully applauds their perfect right to say these things should probably also be punched because they are clearly surplus to human requirements. Nazis do not need a hug. Nazis do not need to be indulged. The world doesn't get better until you've been removed from it. Your false equivalences mean nothing. Their agenda is always, always extermination. Nazis need a punch in the face. Is there not something in between the punch in the face and the standing up and applauding. Mm. Uh, of, you know, do you know what I mean? It well, seems the, like the thing in the middle, uh, to quote Woody Allen, is, is is it from Manhattan or Annie Hall? But where a group of New York intellectuals are talking about some issue or another and uh, 
the the upshot is that one of them will write a strongly worded letter to the New York Times, which is you know the ultimate repost, mm. uh, like the 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 nuclear option mm. in in that particular world is you know write a, a coruscating uh, three paragraphs that will be published in the in the New York Times. Yeah, um, you know people were saying, oh, of course we know it wasn't punches, but. Uh, you know, witticisms, funny tweets, sar- you know, sarcastic memes that, that stopped the Nazis. Actually, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't um, street violence either. They they loved street violence. They came out on top in street violence to characterize... Swept to power as a result of it in, in many ways. Well, they, they, they ruled the streets because, you know, when you've got like a, a, a thuggish movement, which is all about the worship of power and you know, uh, the rem- removal of any uh, sort of inhibition against brutality. It's no surprise that such a movement turns out to actually thrive, to prosper in the in, in an environment of, you know, lawlessness and, and violence. Um, I mean, there are... There, there's another quote going around which supposedly is from... Um, is from Adolf Hitler. And now, I don't know if it actually... I don't know if he actually said this... Um, but it's been repeated so many times on the internet in the last couple of days that he might as well have, uh, you know. Um, and he says, th- and, and this is a quote which is put about by people saying, look, this is the only way to stop this type of a movement. And Hitler himself says, only one thing could have stopped our movement if our adversaries had understood his principle and from the first day smashed with the utmost brutality the nucleus of our new movement. Again, uh, you know, I, I can't find the, the actual mm. provenance of this quote. But what he's saying there is... <laughs> These idiots didn't really understand what they were dealing with. Uh, they needed to really stomp down on us, you know, kill us at the beginning. And then maybe they wouldn't have had, you know, we wouldn't have been a, such a problem for them. But of course, if you were to posit the existence of um, of an even more brutal, the opposition uh, an even more kill. murderous opposition, where what's going to happen once they've, you know, are they going to say, well, that's the problem solved? You know, you, you, you don't know. I mean, if you if you squash... If you, if you nip it in the bud, you never realize that it could, that you, you know, what you've avoided. You know, the next thing to find is something else to nip in the bud. You know, if you've, if you've got this, like, uh, ruthless, ruthless kind of eth- ethic of violence, that effectively is what separated the Nazis from a lot of their competitors at the time. That is why they, you know, were able to rule in this Become in this us or destroy us. Yeah. And neither option is... Uh, so, if you, so, 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 the, so that type of, you know, to, to destroy it by that means... Is to is to actually become it. You are now. You are now the thing. You know, it doesn't have to be this particular group of people. It's kind of whoever is the most ruthless and violent uh, and uncompromising. Because you know, how do you decide who gets a punch in the face? Mm. This guy Spencer is is you know a disgusting individual. One of the premier, uh, most deserving candidates for a punch in the face. Yeah, but you know, everyone's got a slightly different perspective as well. You know, look at those. Um, I mean, my, my perspective is, yeah, he is, he's a disgusting individual. He's a, he's a ludicrous. He's a, he's a joke. His, uh, his philosophy is, re, is repugnant. Um, but I still kind of don't think punching people is the way to go because, you know, it's not just good guys punching bad guys. That's not the way this works. You know, if everyone is punching everybody, then who wins? You know, like you saw Trump talking about his bikers for Trump, you know, like a literally saying, okay, I've got like a bunch of muscle men coming along to this thing, you know, and they'll be on the streets just so everybody knows. 
you know, the bikers for Trump obviously have a different idea. I'm sure they've got strong convictions about certain people who would deserve to be punched in the face as well. You know, if that sort of if that becomes the way things are done, then it's a fair. And I know that what I'm saying here is it, it kind of begs the question: Well, what are you going to do? I mean, I, I remember last last year I went to Berlin. Uh, the I was in the German History Museum. They have a section on Weimar Germany, which is a, you know it's an amazing display. Um, a lot of it is uh, the graphic art of the time, like because Weimar was like this amazing uh, period for graphic design, for posters, uh, and also and film as well. Mm. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and all that amazing looking. Massive, art. massive cultural upheaval expressed in these uh, political posters. Um, and you know very, a lot of extremist movements, not just the the Nazis and similar right wing movements, but also um, very uh, you know the, the, the socialists, the communists, and so on. And one poster that I remember is the Catholic Centre Party Zentrum, um, and the poster showed a, it was kind of if you can imagine you're at the foot of a canyon. Uh, that's your. That's the sort of perspective of whoever is looking at this picture, and uh, like there's a, a big tall, the steep kind of cliff-like walls of this canyon going up at the top to a bridge, and you can see this bridge sort of arcing across the canyon, like you know, elegant-looking bridge. And at the top, on the bridge, you can see the tiny little figures of people kind of peering down um, at what's happening in the canyon, which is this huge battle between these two. Like I can only describe it as like zombie armies, like uh, hideous. Like uh, human-like uh, creatures s- clawing and scratching at each other. Some of them with swastikas. Some of them with hammers and sickles. You know, people trying to crawl away, covered in blood. You know, uh, basically hell. It's hell at the bottom of the canyon. And this is the Catholic Centre Party saying, "We are the reasonable ones." Zentrum is the bridge. Zentrum is the way that Zentrum, which means center, uh, is the way to to kind of don't. Don't go with the extremists of, of right or left. You know, we're going to be up here. And, of course, you know, things didn't really work out so well for Zentrum. Like this, this idea that, that you could somehow rise above this, uh, th- this kind of bloody battle that was taking place proved to be a complete, um, you know, an, an illusion, like a kind of a pipe dream. So that's a fairly hopeless uh, note on which mm. to end this brief well, the, uh, interlude. I told yeah. you that's what we end up talking about today. If we're not talking about that, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> Tom Brady is Trump's. As you want to, you want to. Well, no, just it, the, the 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 question you asked there was how do you beat it? I mean, it's quite simple. All these people, all everyone who is out protesting, everyone who is wondering what the hell to do, repudiate the uh, Republican Party in two years' time, and then repudiate Trump in four years' time, and that's just you know there there is hope there. I think. Yeah, there still is still for now. Tom Brady is Trump's number one sports guy, as Keith Duggan called him, in a really good Irish Times column over the weekend. And Brady did the business last night. He's into the Super Bowl. The Patriots are into the Super Bowl for the seventh time in the Brady-Belichick era. It's pretty staggering stuff. He will be the most successful quarterback of all time if he wins this one in terms of Super Bowls on his own with five, certainly five starting roles as quarterback. So we'll get into that with Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe right now. Let's talk rugby. Murray back to Blandahl. Rory Scannell... Conway, lots to do, gets it inside, they've done it, Kingley, how about that for an introduction, and Munster surely now have the win to secure 
Yeah, they certainly did. A smiling Ian Keatley with the try that sealed the win for Munster against Racing Metro. They are through to a home quarter final as our Leinster Shane Horgan is ready to chat and Jerry Thorny is in studio. Jerry, how are you? Very good, thank you. Are you satisfied with the uh, European season so far, given how close Connor came and that there are two quarter two home quarterfinals to look forward to for Munster Leinster? Is that p- pretty good? Well, it is pretty good. You would have certainly accepted that at the start when this all began, given how the Irish provinces went last year, to get two home quarterfinals. Amazing, the Irish are back to a degree I don't think many of us thought was likely at this point a year ago, or even the start of the season. Yep, my overriding feeling is one of disappointment because Connacht should have been there as well. You know, I don't think... I mean, all Toulouse have done to get into the quarters is beat Zebra and Connacht at home, and they've got through with three wins. And I just think back to so many missed opportunities for Connacht in the first game in particular... They go ahead 23-21 and they had two attacking line-out malls and I always felt this was going to come back and bite them. That had they converted one of those, they'd have got a fourth try themselves and denied to lose a bonus point. And actually last, yesterday's game would have almost been a dead rubber. They would have already been through before the game even started. Then you come down to other missed opportunities during the course of the, of the pool programme. But most of all yesterday, just how badly they played in the first half. It was surprising. Um, I don't know where nerves got to them. But they made so many odd decisions in terms of their game management. They um, made so many unforced handing errors. They moved quite laterally. Uh, they didn't protect the ball very well. They ended up only having 25% of possession in the first half. And it was a minor miracle that they were only 14-3 down. And then even from 19-3 down to almost boss the game thereafter and to have had opportunities certainly to get the three points they needed. The message did go down. You just wonder again about some of the decisions going wide. Long pass from Jack Cardi to Matt Healy in the touchline going for an elaborate blindside mood off a line-out when all they had to do was work themselves into drop-goal range. Is this, is this not how they play it, though? And in fairness, John Muldoon did say, not necessarily the line-out did come quite late, but he said there was a call earlier on where he felt, look, there's still 10 minutes on the clock here. Mm. We, can go for, we can go for a drop-goal, but equally... That just means they'll just have to come up and get a penalty and, yes. and they're through. Whereas yeah. what Connacht have been about is going for the juggler uh, as often as possible. Yeah, true. It is very much what about. somebody told me. I don't know whether it's true or not. I would be surprised if any Connacht players kicked a drop goal since Dan Parks. They just don't, <laughs> it's not in their repertoire. But sometimes it's a case of needs must. Yeah. And there was a quarter final in the European Champions Cup at stake. So why not get what you needed and then take it from there? Um, I'm sure they wonder about it themselves. And they certainly, they, the lineup move they went for was the, the wrong call. Um, there's some confusion on the pitch as to what they were meant to be doing. They went for the wrong call anyway, and so they'll have plenty of regrets. I don't think it's an epic to lose side. That being said, Connor probably didn't deserve to win in the day. Just you wonder when they will ever get an opportunity like that again. When they're going to qualify for the European Champions Cup again? Whether they're going to get Zebra in their pool again? Um, and when it's going to come down to a sixth game? And you wonder if somebody like John Muldoon will ever get that opportunity again. So that's a bit sad. And also, also, I think Munster versus Connacht in the quarterfinal at Thoman Park would have been pretty epic. Yeah, what about that, Shane? Will they get the? Uh, is it a chance blown by Connacht? Do you think? Yeah, and in particular uh, yesterday uh, was a, a series of errors and a series of strange decisions, um, some of which have paid off for Connacht in the last uh, year, eighteen months. Um, but I think that lack of pragmatism um, that we spoke about last uh, week came home to roost a little bit and it was strange because they actually had a, their kicking game especially in the second ha- half um, from deep was um, the use of it was was more than I've seen in a long time from Connacht so it was kind of surprising when they did get into the red zone of um, Toulouse that they didn't take the opportunity for the, the drop goal in particular and I think they will regret that um, even though Jerry says um, there hasn't been one kick since Dan Parks you, you should have one in your arsenal 
and it's not enough to say well that's the only that's the only style we know because um you can have a philosophy but if you're rigid to it and it restricts you and it stops you from qualifying for a um, knockout stages of Europe then you need to think you need to revisit it yeah I, I, I guess the argument is that, that that same philosophy is what has got them to this point in the first place so would they be abandoning it somewhat but you can evolve I mean you don't have to stick to the thing that got you to where you are mm. and exactly, you, you've responded exactly to the, the situation point. What they have is they've done. What they've done is um, brought rugby or re reevaluated rugby for everybody, especially in the Pro 12. And I think the way Leinster are playing this year and the way Munster are playing, um, and again probably Glasgow probably re looked at the way they were playing and uh, had an effect on the type of game that they're implementing this year. And Connacht, we always say, you do something last year, if you don't evolve your game, even if you win the tournament, um, then you may be in trouble because everybody else's game will evolve. And last year in particular was a poor year, not to denigrate what Connacht did, but in retrospect now we see that it was both Munster and Leinster uh, weren't playing at the, to the level that they can play at or the level that they're playing at this year, certainly. Um, so they were always going to need to evolve that game, and I don't think they have. Coupled with the loss of a number of key players, I think it's very difficult for them to put themselves in a similar position again. It's not to say it won't happen because there's some of the uh, traits and the philosophy that Pat Lamb has been put in there has been bought in by uh, a large number of the squad who continue on next year. But I do think that they missed, they, they really missed an opportunity. It was. They also got a lesson about how maybe to defend them. Um, Toulouse played them very soft when they were moving the ball wide. Uh, they chased them down, and then they didn't over-resource the wide rook, but set their line very strongly for a fast line speed um, off the, the resulting the resulting rook on the touchline. Um, Connacht didn't have the skill set early on to, to move the ball wide. They dropped a lot of it. They didn't have uh, the penetration through the middle, and then when they did go through them, try to set up through the middle, uh, they under-resourced the rooks and were turned over far too many times. So um, it was kind of a, a lesson on how to beat Connacht as well. Yeah, you'd like to look back. I'd like to look back at all the breakdown decisions, particularly ones by Wayne Barnes. The 16-9 penalty count really did huge damage to Connacht, and he was certainly very consistent. If a player was deemed to be holding on, but I thought an awful lot of the time poachers over the ball were not supporting their own body weight, and he seemed to only referee um, in favour of the defending side at the breakdown. Uh, but the lack of penetration obviously came from no Bundiaki. I mean, it was just so cruel they didn't have him there. I really do believe they'd have won that game. They certainly would have got what they needed had Bundiaki been there. He's the hub of their midfield. He's a decision maker. He trucks up useless ball and makes it into something. He's an X-factor. He can beat a man. Um, I mean, they make comparatively few line-out breaks. I think they missed 26 tackles. Toulouse, as Shane's alluded to, only missed five. And, like, when are they ever going to get a top seeding again? They went in that, that draw as a top seed by dint of winning the league. Never mind actually qualifying it again. So when are they going to get a draw like that again? If they do make it, you have to think it was a huge opportunity lost. And I agree with the lads. There's a European Champions Cup quarterfinal at stake. Do what you have to do. Take a three-pointer. Our an email here uh, from, who is it, Will Thornton. I might put it to you, Shane. Subject, Leinster. Hi, guys. Please don't go easy on Leinster today. They screwed up royally and deserve to be called out. A win would have given them second seeding giving them an easier quarterfinal, a home semi. As it stands, they'll have to beat the team, top of the English Premiership, and then beat Claremont or Toulon in the south of France. Utterly abject by Leinster on Friday. Another example of an Irish team flattering to deceive. If you want to know why fans lose faith so quickly in Irish rugby,
rugby teams as happened after the World Cup this matches the reason why from having a great chance of winning the tournament to a likely heroic exit in the south of France again fool me once we've been fooled more often than George Bush says uh, Will Thornton here to editor at secondcaptains.com what do you make of the, what do you make of the point? Will I think Will needs to calm down a little bit <laughs> Will um, <laughs> I don't know if you'd turn your back on Irish rugby quite so quickly uh, I do think it was a poor performance from Leinster and uh, they look extremely vulnerable when uh, Sexton went off, that's concern. I thought maybe they were in a better position than that um, when they go deep into their um, you know ten, ten division. No Joey Carberry, uh, Ross Brown didn't get the game, get the grips of the game at all. But it wasn't just him. I thought there was a nervousness about um, Leinster from the, the moment that Sexton went off. Prior to that, they looked pretty comfortable. Um, and there's a switch in mentality as well from uh, Castro. It had a direct uh, influence on the way they played when, when Sexton went off. But they would have been extremely uh, disappointed from a de- defensive perspective. That was um, a number of missed tackles. There didn't seem there seemed to be one-on-one missed tackles as well. The defensive system didn't seem too disjointed. But um, still, lots of players made individual errors. And you do think if that's is that a bit of a mentality thing? especially after an opening period where they seemed as if they were they were on for the game, they knew what they were going to do, they knew what they had to do, but then it was almost like they thought they had done it. And, um, yeah, I was disappointed. I even, right at the end, the fact that they kicked the ball off the uh, off the pitch, I, you know, I knew that the opportunity was there, the potential was that they would go through it as a, um, a home quarter-finalist, and the likelihood was that was the case. But, Thought it also did show that they didn't have sort of confidence to go, even though they were 14, down to 14 men, confidence to go, so we can pay a few phases here, get in, even get into drop goal range and uh, try and go for the outright win. I think that sort of, they might regret that, not just in the way um, that they are getting a tougher uh, quarterfinal uh, to Wasps, who will be difficult, but just setting out your stall and putting a little screw in the mind of the opposition, if not worse than for later on in the competition. Is there an issue with Leinster this year, Shane, that when things are going well, they're really, really good and they put teams away. Uh, and then if they're in a dogfight, there's something missing there. If you look at Castor away, Montpellier away, Munster away, uh, Scarlets, they, when they're in a dogfight, they actually don't look very confident. Yeah, they did. They did look a little bit fragile on those occasions. Sometimes there's been varying reasons, various reasons for it, uh, the loss of key players. But uh, and that was the case at the, the weekend. Sexton is still and will remain um, the most important aspect of of Leinster's uh, team selection. If and East is not far away. If you're going to handpick two players not to yeah. lose in the Leinster backline, and maybe even the, le- the entire team, including Jamie Heaslip, it would be Easton to say with yeah. Johnny Sexton. Yeah, but I think you've got uh, Rob Carney. Rob Carney, look at the pedigree of him. Like, and I don't think he had a particularly you know poor game when he came on. But may, as you as you say, maybe not quite the influence that Issa has, uh, has. and. If that is the case, if um, you know you lose Isa and uh, you have you know a lion to come in and take over, that shouldn't be a disastrous loss. And maybe it's yeah. uh, it's something that you know Leinster need to maybe recalibrate uh, their leadership a little bit because you are going to lose players. There'll be players lost from the Six Nations as well. 
Um, and they have to find a way to win if you do lo- lose Johnny Sexton or if you lose Easton Asiwa or if you lose um, Sean O'Brien or Jamie Heaslip or, or Tyke Furlong or whoever the key player is This is going to be an issue for Ireland as well Jerry. A huge issue You know the squad's the court- name today and there's only Paddy Jackson is the only backup out half in there to John, Which is very surprising only two out halves you, I presume Joe Schmidt is very confident Johnny Sexton is going to be fine for the opening match obviously and I would have got feedback to that extent and is perhaps hopeful that Joey Carberry is going to be fit again and back in the mix after the first two rounds that would be your third choice at half there but it is it, it does look a bit thin there say compared to inside centre where there's three stroke four um, alternatives there I think what it showed is that a uh, that Leinster, no less than other teams, are very dependent on key players. You take them out of the mix and they do look a little bit callow and inexperienced, which is what they are throughout the team. I think also they're very fine margins. Um, if, if they'd gone, tried to go down the pitch with 14 men and coughed up a ball over turnover and lost the game, then they'd be away to Wasps. I don't think Mitt Dawson would be very too happy with them then. It's still a home quarter final. It's still a huge boon financially for the organisation. Um, it's still an achievement in that sense. If you look back at the end of the fine margins, like the long kick ahead from Adam Byrne that eludes Rob Carney, that doesn't, it was a wicked bounce, falls into Rob Carney's hands, that's a bonus point win, and they're ranked second, and we wouldn't be having this discussion to the same extent, so there are very fine margins, but yeah, looking ahead now, they look less like potential winners of the tournament, I thought, during the course of the game, admittedly I think Castro were a pretty good side, much better side than Toulouse in actual fact, but um, it's a big problem because two weekends after Ireland-England meet in the Six Nations finale, um, Leinster 15 players in the squad, Munster f- 13, I think it is. And they have to go then into a quarterfinal two weeks later with just one Pro 12 match, which you'd imagine a lot of the front line is going to have to be rested from. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very big demanding ask. And I remember one year, I think they lost Johnny Sexton in the knockout stages through an injury in the Six Nations. Well, was it a jaw injury? And he missed that semi-final way in Toulouse. Um, and it's going to be quite an ask because this interrupts their momentum now and they have really only one week to get it back for a big quarterfinal. Yeah, but, but Jerry, we know that every year. That never changes. And I don't think it has that much of an impact. It could have an impact with regards to injuries, but actually momentum, Irish players know how to deal with that. And how often have, over the course of the last you know, 15 years have um, bulk supply, you know, Leinster and Munster have been bulk suppliers to Ireland and um, they've had really tough um, campaigns in the Six Nations and then come out in one quarter finals. I don't think we make that, uh, that's not an excuse anymore. Um, there used to be a three week gap though, Shane, wasn't there? And there used to be that Munster Leinster game was always factored in before the quarter finals after, after Six Nations. So it was a bit more of a yeah. lead into it. It's a while ago though. You know, I think it's a while ago that there was that. They've been dealing with this for, for a period and it's always been breaks and. It kind of I don't know if it's necessarily always a bad thing. You come back with enthusiasm, play for your for your uh, province, and I think it's worked in, as an advantage for teams um, on occasion. Shane, what about the fact that if you're going into a game knowing you're out half, might be gone after 20 minutes, and it's you know it's happening happening repeatedly. That must unnerve a team in some way, both Ireland or Leinster. I think uh, it will. It's not like any other position, is my point. Mind. I've, yeah, but I've never really been in that situation in a team, so it's kind of hard to to understand how you know, these players will feel because Johnny Sexton's injury um, profile has been quite unique and uh, it has been um, kind of disturbing. And you know, just on that alone, we've noticed that we're picking up on it, so players must do as well. It's kind of different if you've got a situation where you've got you know Joey Carberry um, even waiting to to come in, who's you know, he's now played international rugby. He's really starred for Lancer in the occasions that he's played for them. Um, so when you're going a little bit deeper, I think it does have to have an effect, especially when you've got a backline of the youth that you have. There's been huge positives around, you know, having a backline as young as as Leinster do at the moment. 
um, and we're seeing that in, in some of the um, ambition and confidence um, that they've played with and lack of fear. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's with that lack of fear, players don't know fear until they don't have that lack of fear anymore, if that makes any sense. And uh, But I do think they start to um, worry a little bit more about their own performance when you don't have the, the calming influence of, of, of Sexton um, or the potential for him to go off. Just on that issue, actually, of the younger players, quite a few young Munster guys in this extended squad for Ireland. Jerry the Scannell brothers, John Ryan, a prop, Andrew Conway's in there as well. Are, we've seen these players impress a lot over the last couple of months in particular. Have they been playing above themselves, do you think? Or were they unpolished gems that have just been polished over the last three months? I think more the latter, to be honest. I, I really like the look of Rory Scanlon as, as, as inside centre. He seems to be just getting better with every game. He's got a really good kicking game, good passing game, good carrying game. It, it ticks a lot of boxes. Niall Scanlon's been very good for them as well. It helps the playing alongside experienced players and Munster are winning rather than coming into a losing team that's low in confidence, um, which would have been the case at times in the last couple of years. I think in that sense, it very much reflects form. I think Andrew Conway has been sensational the last couple of matches, mm. playing the best rugby of his life, brilliant in the air, huge, huge, big plays defensively in, in the away game against Glasgow, again at the weekend, magnificent offload inside for Ian Keatley's try, which was a lovely moment in what's likely to be Keatley's last season there. So I think when you look at it and you see 13 Munster players, it's their highest representation quite some time. And a couple of years ago would have been quite low and of course you've got Peter Amani back to his best and CJ Stander and other players and Conor Murray who's scrum half now you wouldn't swap for anybody else in the world so I think the mid, the breakdown with Munster now back up to 13 players and onside 15 Leinster players is very much a reflection of form Yeah and uh, Zebo at 15 as well mm. Shane I guess it's an argument but he's put his hand forward he's now on 51 tries I think he was 50 tries yeah. in 100 games yeah. coming into um, coming into that match at the weekend Oh, as, as somebody who's quite a few of them yourself what do you see in Zebo that give, uh, is it a confidence thing as much as anything that he looks like a player and we don't necessarily have that many of them that actually is convinced he's the one who's going to take it over and may, maybe sometimes to the detriment of playing, of, of, of playing the safe pass to somebody else to finish it off what is it that he has well, I, I, he was never lacking in confidence, and that was a, a real key element of his game, and always has been. Um, I think sometimes the confidence may have been um, misplaced, and I think he would occasionally try things um, that were, were too high risk, uh, whether it's for his own skill set at the time or for the players around him. Um, what has been really transformative in the last um number of months particularly this season is how he's just developed into a really uh, senior player and it's, it's very obvious you know he was always well liked member of the squad but he doesn't he's not the young guy anymore and um i think that has had an effect on his game um but also um, has effect on the game of the players random and you know munster have been so enjoyable to watch for the last couple of months you know and there was this run of form one of the catalysts for it was an absolute tragedy but something really positive and something sort of beautiful has come out of it and uh, the way they're playing the way they're playing for each other their interactions and how they're enjoying it and uh, i just loved watching that game at the weekend uh, and you know they they know what they're doing they know their own philosophy better than anybody else and um, it just dawned on me in that first half where they were just taking one outrunner after one outrunner and I was saying why aren't they moving the ball wide but they have a different philosophy and their philosophy is we will take it out of the legs in this first half and then you saw what happened in the second half they didn't rely on just a one outrunner shot across that first pot a few times into the hands of the 10 and went out with a bit more width and then at that point in the second half 
Um, the opposition didn't know whether they were Arthur or Martha, didn't know where uh, their next attack was going to come from. So they look like a team that is really enjoying what they're doing, but are also very, very well informed of the type of game that they want to play. And it's a very Munster type of rugby, and it's, uh, and it's very effective. Yeah, it's a really good point, I think, about even when their tactics look like the wrong tactic, it turns out to be the right tactic. One other player, um, CJ Stander, was man of the match yet again. If you were to go on current form, he, he would surely be the number eight for Ireland. Um, but then the balance is, do you try and get all your best players into the back row? But then there's so many good back rowers at the moment with Jack Conan and Dan Levy and Sean O'Brien has been in and out with injury and a few others. Peter Manley obviously back. Mm. What's your what's your view on that with Ireland, Shane? Is there a chance Standard could start at eight? Would you pick him at eight? I think there is a really good chance he could start. It's hard to see how you don't have him in the team, um, whether that be at eight or at six. But he could maybe say that about a good number of other back rowers as well. So I think the only way you can deal on this is really how the next couple of weeks go in, in training. And that's the only sort of logical way you can deal with this. Um, when you try a number of different combina- combinations, um, you see how they're gelling together, how they're going against their uh, immediate opposition. Because, you know, as things stand, it's very, very hard to, to you know, drop Shane, Jamie Heaslip has come back into incredible form. Sean O'Brien could be in a tr- bit of trouble just because he hasn't been playing. Um I think it's going to be extremely difficult. It's a it's a good problem, but it is a it's a really difficult one, and we're going to be in a situation where Ireland have um, you know the strongest back row and replacement back row that they've ever had by a long way. Um, but I do think it's it's almost impossible to leave the CJ Standway out of the team at the moment. Jerry, we'll be coming back to the quarterfinals in due course, but mm-hmm. just an initial thought on that uh, that uh, Munster to lose game. Um, I mean, it's nothing to be afraid of from a Munster point of view based on what we've seen. I don't think, even though there is a lot of hype around this idea that, that Toulouse are playing a bit of rugby again now and, and might be dangerous in that way. What, what, are, what are your initial thoughts? Well, my initial thoughts are it's an incredibly heavyweight lineup in the last eight. It's a great boon for the competition that it's not an Anglo-French carve-up. You've got um, two Irish, a Scots, uh, two English and three French. Six of these teams have won the competition 15 times between them, I think. You know, it's really mm. a heavyweight lineup, and then you've got the favourites, Claremont, who've still never won it, and maybe will find a way of being the best team in it and not winning the tr- trophy again. And Glasgow, it's good to see a Scottish side in there playing the rugby they're playing. So, I think from the Munster to lose point game, you'd have to make Munster strong favourites. Certainly, they walloped to lose there three years ago at the same stage. To lose his only previous visit to um, Thoman Park, they were spooked by the occasion and the venue. Um, Dusatoire didn't play that day. We were speaking to him afterwards. He was, he's really looking forward to playing in that game. Um, I think they are definitely finding a bit of form. I watched them win away to Stade Francais a couple of weeks ago. They came back from behind and won away in Paris with a couple of late tries. And you know what away wins are like in terms of hard currency over in the top 14 and how rare they are. Um, so they've, they've got a, certainly a, a juggernaut of a team. Huge um, ball carrying um, potential all across the pitch. Big bench, savage bench. And they will try and bash Munster into a submission. I think it's a good day and Munster generate any kind of a high tempo. You saw Toulouse really wilt, I think, in the last 20 minutes. And it was unusual to see them t- be so tardy in using their bench. 65 minutes before they brought on, they seemed to be visibly tiring. I would imagine 
Munster will have too much for them. And, you, you know, as a former Leinster player said to me there recently in the supermarket, they've got their 16th man back, haven't they? You know, so I think that that's counts for a lot too. Okay, brilliant stuff yeah. as always. No, oh, sorry, Shane, quick point on that. Yeah, yeah just on that, it, they have uh, their 16th man back and uh, that relationship, that uh, symbiotic relationship is is back and important and, and uh, it has an effect. But uh, I, I do think, um, Jerry, I don't think Toulouse are going to be beating up this Munster team. I think the... Uh, the no, so they try. That's just not a, that just not on the cards. I know they're big, but these uh, monster players are, are not going to be beaten up. Certainly not in, in Towan Park. And I think that they have the game to beat uh, Toulouse. Uh, you know, I have to say I haven't been so impressed with uh, Toulouse. I know their top fourteen form has got a little bit better, but I think there's fundamental uh, problems with them. And I think the monster kicking game, and we saw a touch of it from from uh, Connacht. The Munster kicking game is made to, to really terrorise uh, this Toulouse uh, team and I think that's what we'll, we'll see play out. Shane, brilliant. Cherry, great stuff. Cheers, thank you. Thanks, Amal. See ya. That's one of those things. One of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Do you think Robbie Keane just said, you know what? Any questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh, yeah. He's got more of a tan than me. Without meaning to over egg the Simon Zebo love bombing here, Simon. Uh, he, he obviously has been playing great stuff, and I think Shane described it really well there in terms of the leadership qualities that he's shown in recent yep. times but also the fact that he hasn't stopped doing the others everyone talks about this that he needed to change his game particularly for Joe Schmidt at international level but he still scores tries one and two for Munster is a pretty phenomenal strike rate is he better deployed for Ireland at full back do you think? Yeah I think he's more scope to be creative and that's his key that's this point to differential for most other rugby players it's a rare commodity in rugby I think so many players just do their basic task but to see space to put others into space is the thing that most countries and most teams lack. Um, but the finishing thing, it's like he's a different person when he's five metres from the opposition line. And I think also finishing is a bit of an underestimated skill in Irish rugby and maybe even in Irish sport. We've had this Robbie Keane debate before about you know how valued it is in the overall pantheon of Irish players. And the same with scoring tries. I think it's a little bit like, oh yeah, it, it's, he's a finisher and people just compartmentalise it. But in terms of waiting, it, you know, of all the skills you could have in rugby, again, it, it's so much more important than the other things that you do. And, it, you know, it can negate various deficiencies in a team. If you've got one or two really good finishers, yeah, it's not you've a, got five points. And it's not always celebrated as much as, I think, probably because this idea that rugby players, no more than other sports, but in particular, there's this team idea and they parrot it even more than a footballer might, this idea that I was just on the end of the move. It's it's yeah. almost as though we don't want to lend too much credence to who scores the tries or how many are scored. Yeah. These, these are all team tries. And that probably is the case more so because it's less likely than in football, just a line yeah, break, it is more of a, try. Te- a team sport. But, it, but, but how often, need the guy to, to do it. Yeah. yeah, how often do you see a team banging away five metres from the line and then not getting the try? Yeah. Or And also the, the idea that a line break at three on two automatically means that, you know, three seconds later you're touching down for a try I mean the amount of there there you can there are uh, butchered opportunities that you can see and then there are butchered opportunities that you actually kind of have to look for a small bit mm-hmm. you know this idea that the ball gets into the hand, hands of the winger and he he, he he doesn't he doesn't make a mistake 
He just doesn't finish. Yeah. You know, and I think like that happens a yeah. lot. I and think. I think especially with the Irish back three, Joe Schmidt tends to go with the more pragmatic Trimble or whoever it may be. That you need one guy in that back three that is like that. You can't just have three steady eddies. We hereby salute the try scorers, <laughs> the Irish try scorers in particular. The Irish Times Second Captain's football podcast is already out there. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you I'd say to you, I'd say to you now. What you doing down here, you show me, man. Well, there was a lot to talk about uh, from the football over the weekend. Rage from Arsene Wenger. Courage from Pep Guardiola. Moving, a moving display of courage. Balance on Jose Mourinho. And uh, also Sid Lowe talking to us about... Uh, Zinedine Zidane and Iago Aspas, two of the brightest stars in the firmament of Spanish football. We also sat there for a few minutes and watched hilarious corner kicks that have gone wrong. Well, you and Kieran did. I was, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, nobody can see this corner video mm-hmm. uh, apart from Owen and Kieran. So I hope. And they're not even really describing anything. So no, they're just sitting watching it while just I was la- talking about just laughing at, at mistakes being made in front of our eyes. I hope that uh, I hope that went down okay with the, the Just so you know, the video is two minutes fifty three seconds long. So as soon as you hear the bit where we start watching it, if you just want to keep just going for two minutes, two or two minutes and fifty three yeah. seconds, you'd probably you can hear the bit back on the, track. Yeah. I'm not sure how much time President Trump had in his hands last night. What with his promises to end crime, drugs, radical Islamic terrorism, and a little bit more besides to keep him busy. But if he did get a couple of hours of kickback. Sure, he would have been happy to see his favourite sportsman, Tom Brady, lead the New England Patriots to the Super Bowl for a seventh time with an absolute beatdown of the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is in the AFC Championship game. Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe is with us. Kevin, how are you keeping? Very well. A pretty convincing stuff by Brady and the Patriots last night. Yeah, I, I don't think it, even Patriots fans, I think, were surprised that this really wasn't much of a match, um, even though, you know, the score at halftime didn't indicate it was going to be a blowout, but... If you watch the game, there was never a feeling that Pittsburgh was really going to beat them. And then the game before that, Atlanta and Green Bay was even worse. So in terms of sporting events, neither of the championship games were were must-see TV. They were just really kind of blowouts. Brady, uh, he's 39 years of age now, I think, and I know he has talked in the past about playing for a number of seasons yet. You know, usually that's what players say because it's probably the clever thing to say in terms of continuing to get contracts and so on, but he does look like he's, he's playing like a 23, 24-year-old out there. He's the Dorian Gray of football, that's for sure. And the other thing, if you look at Brady just you know historically, he has this, uh, a skill set that doesn't decline with age. I mean, he was never a particularly mobile quarterback. He's really a, a classic drop back, feel the pressure, step up, release the ball quarterback. His uh, his release, his 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 skills have only gotten better with age, which is remarkable. And it's one of those things you can't say, oh, well, that's because he's taking enhancing, you know, uh, the human growth hormone or anything like these. These are skills that really come with experience more than anything. I would compare him to a, a top football goaltender in, in, you know, in the Premier League or something like that. Those are guys that often get much better with age, that it really isn't about athletic ability so much as it is about experience and knowing what to do in certain circumstances. 
Yeah, which and also bringing the best out of others, which I suppose is a key quality in your quarterback. He's made a lot of he's made a lot of otherwise not particularly well known footballers, uh, American footballers, into pretty big names. I mean, a guy last night, Chris Hogan, is yeah the latest to benefit from this. I I, I don't think a particularly heralded sports person coming into this year, but uh, suddenly he's a superstar scoring a couple of touchdowns. That seems to happen every year. If if you go through the the, the history of, of of Tom Brady. If you take out a guy like Randy Moss, who's a Hall of Famer, I, you know, there's probably nobody else that he would. Well, clearly, Rob Gronkowski will probably go there someday. But Brady has not been surrounded by gifted receivers. Um, even last night, I mean, I think Antonio Brown for the Pittsburgh Steelers is one of the premier receivers in the game. And when you looked at Atlanta, Atlanta with a guy like Julio Jones, who I think is the premier receiver in the game right now, Brady's never had those guys around him. And a guy like Chris Hogan comes out of obscurity. I mean, he was like a nobody for the Buffalo Bills last year. And he led the NFL uh, in in average uh, yards per catch. He averaged over 20 yards per catch. And that's exactly what he did yesterday. He had, you know, he had, he had 180 yards, just about 20 yards per catch. Extraordinary. And I chalked that up to Brady as much as anything. He's going out for a fifth Super Bowl win, Kevin. Would that cement his place as the greatest quarterback of all time? I'm sure that, that place is well cemented in your neck of the woods. But nationally, do you think people, Joe Montana fans and so on, would, would start accepting this argument? No, you have to understand that they are still the Manchester United of American football, anybody but Man U. The, the, the Patriots are really hated outside of New England. Um, they, they are believed to be cheats. Uh, they've been, you know, the, the Flakegate being the most re- uh, most recent one. I'm actually writing my column yesterday about for tomorrow about Alarmgate because early in the morning yesterday with a, uh, some guy walked into a hotel where the Pittsburgh Steelers were staying near Logan Airport and pulled the fire alarm like three in the morning and woke everybody up and they all got thrown out of the hotel. They all had to evacuate the hotel. There are people across the United States who believe that the Patriots had something to do with this. There's this absolute obsession with the Patriots of being, it doesn't make any sense that they could be so good so long in a game that's taken such effort to create parity. So, I mean, no, I, I think Tom Brady is, by any definition, the greatest quarterback of all time. But I don't think he would win a national poll in that by any stretch. I didn't realize there was a new um, a new scandal this year. I thought we were going to go scandal well, I'm free. Pick it up, even if it isn't. There, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but people are there. Are, there are people who are going to say that this was uh, another Bill Belichick trick or Tom Brady trick to get to get somebody uh, maybe through intermediaries to set an alarm off in the Pittsburgh Steelers hotel. Well, there's clearly if if there are definitely Pittsburgh. I've already seen it on social media that there are Pittsburgh Steelers fans who believe that. I mean, like I said, when you get beat down like that, you have to blame it on something else. And you know, Le'Veon Bell obviously suffered a groin injury, the great running back for Steelers, and you know, oh, and everybody knows that the the leading cause of a groin pulse is uh, sleep deprivation. Didn't you know that? Kevin, the uh, the Trump connection is fascinating. Uh, it's been yeah. there. It's been there since uh, a number of months. Since back in October, there was a photograph that happened to feature uh, a "Make America Great Again" hat, baseball cap, I should say, in Tom Brady's locker. I think it was tweeted out by a teammate or a member of staff. I, I don't know how much Brady has talked about this, but again, over the weekend, I think it was the uh, the eve of inauguration dinner. Trump had uh, Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner there, and he was saying, oh, your guy Tom called me there just to wish me well and say that he's feeling pretty good about it. He things. also mentioned him in the speech to the CIA. Yeah. So he's got like Tom Brady on the brain. He, yeah. Is this reciprocated? Is, is Tom Brady as big a pal of the new president as Trump seems to be 
I think he is well, anyway with Tom Brady? They've, they've golfed together quite a bit, and they, they are friendly with each other, As and, and Trump is friendly with Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach. But um, this is something that Brady particularly has tried to downplay and tried to stay away from. And there, there was a, you know, pretty well accepted that his wife, Giselle Bunchen, the, the supermodel, um, was a fan of Hillary Clinton. So I think there was a split in that house. And she was constantly trying to keep him out of that public because it does not go down well around here because obviously, you know, Trump was trumped here and uh, or trounced here in, in, in Massachusetts in particular, but also throughout all New England. This was the one part of the country that, you know, Trump did not win. And um, so he, he can't, we constantly put it on Brady and he constantly tries to avoid it. But there's no doubt, there's no denying. And Brady has said, you know, warm things about Trump as a person and said he's a friend and they get along and they golf together. So, I mean, really, this to me comes down to multimillionaires hanging out with multimillionaires. So I don't think it's very surprising that Donald Trump and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick would be buddies because they travel in that same world, the world that you and I could only dream about. Yeah, well, it, wouldn't, it would seem impossible for Brady to disown the friendship anyway if it's as obvious if trump keeps mentioning it it's pretty hard for brady not to be asked about it. this is going to come up presumably in the lead up to the super bowl you have that media day where players get asked all sorts of nonsense so this is this would be a juicy enough storyline or does anyone care am i just asking is, is this no, horse no, bolted I think you're right i think it will be particularly because as you know that the nonsense that follows it, it you know there, there are too many days between it's two weeks now to the super bowl and the week uh, in the run-up in houston clearly this will be one of the lines of questioning that Brady will not be able to escape. And, you know, the interesting thing is whether Trump is going to make a big deal out of this, too. And knowing Trump, I don't think he can help himself. I think he will continue to at least tweet about it, if not talk about it. What did you make of Trump's opening weekend, and in particular, the, the new star of the regime, Sean Spicer? Well, I mean, it's it's disturbing. I mean, obviously, I didn't support Donald Trump. I wouldn't have voted for him if he put a gun to my head. But he is the president of the United States, but it is concerning that his first day of office, actually the first thing he obsesses about on his day off, is not relations with Russia, not the not the situation with China, not the, the threat of, of terrorism, but with the size of his inauguration, uh, the people that attended his inauguration. It was almost an extension of an obsession with the, the size of his hands. And what it has to do with anything is beyond anyone's. But but it really did set the tone, I think, for what's going to be. You're going to have a, a, a very aggressive news media going after this administration on, on things like this. There, there used to be this sort of, you know, he said, she said approach in American journalism. I think that changed with this, this election. And I think when, when Donald Trump engages in something such as saying that I, I, had, as me, I had more people than at the Obama administration, when there's photographic evidence that shows that's just demonstrably untrue, the news media now is not is is not even pulling punches. Most of them, if, unless the you know we're talking about Fox News and and right wing media, most of them are just calling it for what it is. They're saying that he has falsely said this, or he is you know it, it, there's no punches being pulled. There's no shading of this. They're saying that he is speaking untruths that, or in some cases, that he's lying. And so I think the gloves are off on this. And unfortunately, I, I don't think that's really great for the United States, but it is what it is. Uh, and I think that the marches that you saw in, in, across the United States, and the, there was one in Dublin. And I think that is something that is not going to go away. I think it's going to dog this presidency. 
And uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's great for the country. But then again, electing somebody like Donald Trump, I don't know how that would be great for the country either. It's it's such a kind of um, d- deeply sort of held convention in American journalism, this idea of, you know, the the objective tone that you're supposed to take, you know, the, mm-hmm. the need to be balanced. I mean, this is kind of how journalists in America have been told to do their sure. jobs for decades and decades. So do you think they're really equipped? I mean, I'm not speaking here about... You know Breitbart or or Fox, who mm-hmm. maybe have been, have been editorializing for a long time now. But I mean, do you think the rest of the media is really equipped uh, to, for this sort of new territory in which um, slanted coverage is more going to become the norm? I don't know. All I can tell you is that there was a noticeable difference in tone in the Sunday morning political chat shows um, in all of the networks. Uh, Chuck uh, Todd, who was on the NBC show Meet the Press. When Kellyanne Conway, Trump's former campaign manager and now special counsel, uh, basically she said something to the effect that the that the uh, Sean Spicer, the press secretary, was offering alternative facts to what the uh, what she said the biased news media presented. Chuck Todd said to her face on national television that alternative facts are not facts; they are falsehoods. And that, to me, was a real dramatic change. Um, and you're right. Culturally, I think, you know, you don't get um, the sort of uh, aggressive questioning that you would expect, say, like on the Today program in BBC or Morning Ireland or whatever you would have in your culture. In our culture, it's, it's been much more deferential. Uh, the, the, the beltway culture is these people socialize with each other. They're, they are, in some case, friends. But I think that is over in this case. And I think the Sunday morning chat shows showed it across the board that, uh, that, that, that there's a change in our political culture and there's a change in our journalistic culture. And it's going to be much more adversarial. Um, unfortunately, I, I mean, I, you know, I think to people who support Donald Trump, there's such an incredible distrust of what we call the mainstream media is that it doesn't matter to them, that, that they do engage and do embrace what they would call alternative facts. Okay, Kevin Cullen, we'll watch with interest. Uh, it's great to talk to you as always. Thank you. Thanks, gents. Second captain. They're better at the internet than we are. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Second captain. Uh-huh. I thought I... Do you believe this? It's so unbelievable. Second captain. On the internet. I'm going to bomb the shit out of them. It's true. I don't care. I don't care. They've got to be stopped. Yeah, just to be clear, Donald Trump, I don't think, was talking about the American media when he made that bomb the shit out of them comment. But who knows, Ken? (laughs) There seems to be a lot of bad blood there, and it's only going one way uh, in terms of how negative it's going to get over the, the... Next while? Well, I mean, it's just completely crazy. You know, how can you have this... How can you... There's no common basis for... There's no set of agreed-upon facts anymore. You know? There's like... Facts and alternative facts. Facts and alternative facts. You know, here's a photograph showing clearly there weren't as many people there. I mean, clear, like a clear visual. This ah, is not, but they put down that floor matting that blocked the grass that made it easier to see all hmm. the white spaces. That was there in uh, 2013. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't understand. I guess that this was kind of the beginner's enthusiasm from from Sean Spicer, uh, you know, to, to go out there and really show that he can go above and beyond uh, for his master. 
uh, and really, uh, you know, delivering the message as though he, <laughs> you know, go, go. I mean, there was a there was a line in the New York Times report of it which which said something like uh, Trump, according to sources close to Trump. Spicer may have gone too far. <laughs> I don't know. He's going to be gone after like two days, because um, because clearly he was he was carrying out instructions to deliver this ridiculous message. But obviously he showed that he, you know, loyalty comes first. He'll do that. Um, and he also needs to realize that he can do exactly what uh, Trump tells him to do, letter for letter, and still, when he gets back to his office, be told that he did terribly. Yeah. He needs to remember that as well. Yeah. That. Trump, can, the cognitive dissonance at work in Trump's brain means that he can do precisely what he's told and terribly at the same time. Well, so I, good luck with that. I think that a lot of these people need to start thinking about, and something we, we were mentioning in connection with Michael Gove. Remember Michael Gove went and did this, oh, Mr. Trump, you're so incredible. Mm. Oh, I love your gold fittings. Oh, you're amazing. You're talking about the first line of your obituary here, buddy. Yeah. You know? This is the thing. you you, you got to take a long view here. This This situation... I don't know. Maybe Trump will be president for the next twenty years. Who, who knows? Um, but uh, again, you've got to you've got to consider how uh, you know the, doing the right thing can be important here. You know, this could be how the world remembers you, and uh, and people have to can't disregard. You know that that there what what might be the convenient thing for me to do in this moment maybe something that I end up regretting for the rest of my life. And this guy Spicer, we're going to be seeing a lot of. I can't, even, rem- I can't even remember the last press secretary now yeah. that I think about it. I don't know how much more we're going to be seeing of him. <laughs> uh, as you were saying on Twitter last night, Ken, I think uh, there's going to be more than one press secretary yeah. over the course of... Uh, yeah, this one, this one might be used up already. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks very much, Ken. Good to be, good to be back here. Uh, good to uh, have good you to back. back. Nice. Great nice to have you back. Isn't it great, isn't we're it? Del- lovely. Can I, just say, can I just put it on the record? We're delighted to have you It back. just seems like you were getting on great with Richie as well. It's just weird. Listen, why have burgers when you have steaks at home on? That's why I always say. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again. Have a listen to the football podcast. Chat to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.